Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we stand amazed at the reality of your love for us. So undeserved, so unmerited, and yet, Lord, so freely given to your own people. Lord, my prayer is that for all of us, the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, that we, along with the whole host of the saints, would be able to comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth and the love that you have for us in Christ. Lord, even in our study this summer, we have seen your love clearly on display in the upper room discourse. Even as Jesus, incarnate love himself, loved his own to the end. What love our God. And Lord, now as we turn our attention and our focus to the study of the text this evening, my prayer is, is that you would increase our love for you. That you would sanctify us in the truth. That you would give us illumination to be able to understand and comprehend the truth. So that by it, we might be rightly conformed more into the image of our master and teacher, Jesus Christ. All for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good evening, Roots. It is good to be back with you this evening and have the joyful opportunity to continue our study through the Upper Room Discourse. And so with that in mind, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 16. Our study this evening will confine us to verses 25 through 33 as we close the discourse proper. I title this message, as you can see on your handouts, Final Preparations for Battle. One of the decisive, turning, and pivotal moments of World War II occurred in the year 1942 at the Battle of Midway. Just a little World War II history for you. It was the year prior that the Japanese had surprised attacked the naval forces and army forces in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii on December 7, 1941. Some six months later, the Japanese Empire continued to make advancements across the Pacific. And strategic to the Japanese plans in winning the war and winning the front in the Pacific was those key islands, the islands of Midway. The United States had annexed the Midway Islands in the 19th century, and by the year 1940, they had begun building military fortresses in preparation for the war. It was in the spring of 1942 by the decoding of an encrypted message sent by the Japanese that the American forces were able to ascertain, to become aware of an upcoming attack by the Japanese on the Midway Islands. This decoding of the encrypted data led the U.S. naval forces to prepare for the attack, to prepare a counter plan for the attack. 
the Battle of Midway waged from June 3rd through the 7th of the year 1942, ultimately with U.S. forces dealing fatal blows to four Japanese aircraft carriers. And apart from the reconnaissance and apart from the encoding of this cryptid data, the U.S. forces at Midway would have been severely unprepared for the coming Japanese assaults. You see, it was with this vital information at hand that Admiral Nimitz and the U.S. forces were able to make the necessary preparations to ultimately claim the battle of Midway and by so doing shift the tides of the war on the Pacific front. It was in the same way that those final preparations were made, allowed the U.S. to gain victory at the Battle of Midway. In that same way, this evening we come to a passage where our Lord Jesus Christ gives his disciples final preparations, not for a physical battle, not for a battle with flesh and blood, but for the spiritual battle that lay ahead as his departure was soon to come. Let me remind you where we are in the overall flow of the upper room discourse. Jesus has been reiterating the truths of his imminent and impending crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension to the father. Jesus promised the disciples that they would face persecution and trouble in this world. We see this at the latter half of chapter 15. As chapter 15 turns to chapter 16, we see Jesus' teaching concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit who would be sent to guide the disciples into all truth. And just recently, we see Jesus' foretelling of his crucifixion that would lead to the distress of the disciples. But ultimately, he proclaims his triumphant and victorious resurrection that would result in their joy. And it's now in our text this evening that we come to the close of the upper room discourse proper. Now chapter 17, the high priestly prayer is considered in terms of Jesus's private ministry and it's considered in the upper room discourse, but in terms of the didactic, in terms of the teaching portion of the upper room discourse, we come to a close this evening. It's in these verses, verse 25 through 33, that Jesus provides final preparations for the battle that lay ahead, the spiritual battle apart from his physical presence amongst the disciples. As one commentator notes, this passage can be summarized as Jesus reminding the disciples of his impending departure and their impending trials. And he gives them a final exhortation to believe and find peace in his victorious work. So how is it that our Lord provides these final preparations to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion? Well, it's in our text this evening that I want you to see three crucial aspects of Jesus's final preparations that provides faith emboldening truth and heart comforting peace. Now, while these final preparations were originally and initially given to the disciples in the upper room, these preparations have eternal and abiding implications upon your life, Christian, so that your faith might be emboldened and so that you may experience the comforting peace that Jesus offers. 
So before we study this text and work through it verse by verse, I wanna read the text in its entirety. So if you would look with me in your Bible to John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. These are the inspired words of the apostle John as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says these words. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father." His disciples said, lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. The first aspect of Jesus's final preparations to his disciples, I've labeled Jesus's plain revelation. Jesus' plain revelation, this runs from verse 25 through verse 28. And it's in these verses that Jesus encapsulates two promises and a profession that provides faith emboldening truth and heart comforting peace. Let's look at them together. The first promise that I want you to behold in this section is a promise of divine disclosure a promise of divine disclosure. Look with me at verse 25. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. So what are the, these things that Jesus is referring to here in verse 25? Are the, these things referring back to what Jesus has just said as he has metaphorically been speaking about his death and his resurrection through the analogy of the woman and childbirth? Or as I would submit to you, is this referring to the entirety of the upper room discourse? You see, this is an epilogue to the upper room discourse, if you will. Jesus is bringing his teaching and his instruction to a close. And as he refers to these things, he refers back to the entirety of everything that we have studied. Things such as his relationship with the believer, abiding in him and he in them. Things pertaining to his impending crucifixion and resurrection and ascension to the father. Things such as the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says in verse 25, these things he spoke in figurative language. You might have a marginal note in your NAS that says a saying, a proverb. But what this word is really referring to is referring to a veiled saying that is obscure to the human thought. 
One theological dictionary defines this word as obscure speech that indicates superterrestrial speech in humans' words. This is the way that John uses it earlier in John chapter 10, verse 6. Speaking of Jesus being the good shepherd, John says, This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. And opposed to this veiled language, opposed to this figure of speech, Jesus says, An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. In terms of the gospel of John, the hour typically refers to Jesus's hour as he accomplishes redemption on behalf of his sheep, as he goes as a substitutionary sacrifice, as the lamb of God to Calvary's cross, as he bears their sin. However, hour can also refer to a general time period, a general time frame of reference. In terms of the overall context of the upper room discourse, this was referring to the time after Jesus's ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In strong contrast to this veiled language, this obscurity of speech, Jesus says, I will tell you plainly of the Father. The unbelieving Jews ask in John chapter 10, verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Don't beat around the bushes. Tell us clearly, openly, plainly. Now you might know some people that have the tendency to beat around the bush, to take the long way around in terms of recounting a certain story. Maybe you're one of those people yourself. However, Jesus pulls no punches. He hides nothing He says there's a time that is coming soon that he will tell plainly and openly of the Father. And you see, the content of this disclosure is absolutely vital. I mean, let your eyes peruse to the next chapter in John chapter 17, verse three. Jesus prays this. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus here promises in verse 25 to disclose the father to the disciples. And brothers and sisters, it should be your daily prayer for a greater revelation, a greater disclosure of the father. Speaking on this side of Pentecost, speaking on this side of the completion of the canon, you have this in the pages of this book. He has spoken plainly. Let me ask you pointedly. When was the last time that you prayed for an increased knowledge, an increased disclosure of God? When was the last time that you begged and you pleaded with God to reveal more of himself from his word? As a Christian, this is your deepest need. It needs to be your deepest desire. It is your highest good to know more about God, to grow in the grace and knowledge of God according to the exhortation of Peter in 2 Peter 3.18. You see, it's as we grow in our knowledge of God that our worship 
exceeds to higher heights and our love of God goes to deeper depths. Are you sitting under the teaching of God's word? Are you regularly looking into the scriptures where God has revealed himself? He has disclosed himself. Jesus says, I will tell you plainly of the father. And as we come to verses 26 and 27, Jesus gives us another promise. And this is a promise of divine access. A promise of divine access. Look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, in that day, you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will request of the father on your behalf. For the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the father. Jesus points the disciples' attention to that day, which harkens back to the hour of verse 25. You see, it is in that day, it is in that hour after the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is referring to in here in verse 26. And in verse 26, Jesus continues this theme of prayer in Jesus' name. We've seen this before in the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, and even just last week in chapter 16, verses 23 through 24. And we've already discussed what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not a magical formula that you appendage to the end of your prayer so that God will listen to you. Rather, praying in Jesus' name means praying according to his revealed will praying upon the basis and the foundation of the person and the mediatorial work of the Son of God, all to the greater purpose of the glory of God. But Jesus adds an additional insight here in verse 26. Jesus says, I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. What is Jesus saying here in this statement? Before discussing what this statement means, we must first discuss what it does not mean. You see, this does not mean that we have access to God, disassociated from or disenfranchised from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This also does not mean or negate the essential high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. The New Testament is clear. Paul in Romans 8, 34 says, it is Christ who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, 25, he ever lives to make intercession. Later in John's first epistle, he says that we have an advocate, a paraclete with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. No, no, Jesus is not saying that his high priestly ministry is negated in any sense. What Jesus is saying here by this statement is that the disciples need not come to him to then plead with the father to listen to their request. The father does not need to be entreated by Christ before he will notice us. We'll see that in a little bit. Arthur Pink helpfully comments, it was not that Jesus has to coerce the father to either hear our prayers to love us the favors which we receive from the Father are not extorted from him by the importunate pleading of the Savior. In verse 27, Jesus provides the positive explanation behind the statement that he has just said. 
Look at verse 27. Jesus says, for the father himself loves you. Christian, you can come to God, the high king of heaven, in unfettered, unabridged, unhindered prayer, offering up prayers and supplications to God in Jesus' name. I mean, we must stop and bask in the glorious reality of this statement. The Father himself loves you. We've already seen in the upper room discourse, the son's love for his own. We saw that in John chapter 13, one says that Jesus loved them to the end, to the uttermost. It's here that Jesus proclaims and emphasizes the father's particular and distinct love for his own. In 1 John 3, one, we read this statement, see how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. The father himself loves you. And notice the distinctness in this statement. Jesus doesn't say the father loves this random assortment or this large group, but personally, individually, the father loves you. Now it's at this point that sadly we have to address the common yet false notion that exists in quasi-Christian circles that the God of the Old Testament was one full of wrath and condemnation and judgment. And yet Jesus is this God of love and tolerance and patience and mercy. Not only does this dichotomy bifurcate the persons of the Trinity and put them at odds against one another, it is completely heretical and completely unbiblical. Jesus says, the father himself loves you. And it is because the father loves you that you have access to God. Do you need motivation to live the Christian life faithfully and obediently? Do you need encouragement to approach God, to come and draw nigh to the throne of grace? Do you need reason, motivation to put to death sin habits that persist in your life? Do you need the compulsion to pursue Christ-likeness with every ounce of your being? There's no greater motivation, no greater foundation than to know that the Father himself loves you. And notice that this verse continues. This verse says that the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Now don't be mistaken. This verse is not teaching that the father loves the believer subsequent to the believer's love and belief in Christ. That's not what this is saying at all. You see, the scriptures are clear and ring out with a resounding emphasis that it is the father's initiating love 
that serves as the foundation for Christians loving God. 1 John 4, 19, we love why? Because he first loved us. We need to be quick to understand that the Father's love is not contingent upon or dependent on our first loving him. The believer's love that is expressed to God is merely expressed as the result of and the response to God's initiating love. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, this is the glorious, the suitable, the divine way by which love streams from heaven to earth. A spontaneous love flowing forth to those who neither deserved it, purchased it, or sought after it. This leads us to a profession that Jesus gives in verse 28. It is a profession of divine faith. A profession of divine faith. One commentator notes that this verse is stated in terms of a doctrinal statement or as a, a creedal confession of what the, fo the follower of Jesus believes about his person and work. J.C. Ryle says, this verse provides a farewell summary of the true nature of the Lord's office and mission. You see, in the most condensed manner, verse 28 describes Jesus' incarnational ministry at his first advent. Jesus, the eternal son of God, came forth from the father, came into the world to pay the penalty for man's sins, and then to rise from the dead and ascend to the Father. Condensed in a matter of 18 Greek words, this profession of divine faith contains three essential truths that you must embrace. I wanna look at them together. The first essential truth that you must embrace is the eternal preexistence of the Son. The eternal preexistence of the Son. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, I came forth from the Father. Jesus is the heavenly one. The Lord Jesus Christ did not originate in a manger in Bethlehem, but the second person of the triune Godhead took upon himself human flesh. He has existed from eternity before the world was, John chapter 17 tells us. This is what John says in his prologue. He says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. Listen, here at Countryside, we hold to a high Christology, a high view of God, a high view of scripture. And we affirm the deity of Christ, the eternal preexistence of the son. But you need to note that there are not just fringe groups, not just cult groups like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses that deny the complete divinity of the Son. I had to read a book for a seminary this last semester. It was the most grueling 700 pages I've ever had to read. But it was rated the 2017 best book in Christian literature. And it denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He was a man that was attested to by God. Listen, if you deny this essential truth of the person of Christ, you are not a Christian. Jesus himself says this earlier in John's gospel, John 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. A 
a second essential truth that you must embrace is the incarnational mission of the son. The incarnational mission of the son. Not only is Jesus the eternal word, the divine logos, but the text says that he came into the world. And this is exactly what John says in his prologue. The word, the word who was with God in the beginning, the word who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. There were some false teachers who would go around in John's day that denied that Jesus Christ had come into the flesh. Second John 7 says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now we must ask, what was the purpose of the eternal son of God taking upon himself a full and a complete humanity in the incarnation? Well, the angel in Matthew's gospel states it succinctly in Matthew 1.21, you shall name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself affirmed this reality in Mark 10.45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came into the world to accomplish the work of salvation and redemption, to fulfill the prescriptive demands of the law, what the law required to satisfy the penal demands of the law, what the law demanded for disobedience in his perfect life and his sacrificial death, offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross to satisfy the justice of God. That is why Jesus came. That is the incarnational mission of the son. Well, we see a third essential truth that you must embrace in this verse, and it is the resurrection and ascension of the son. Jesus says, I'm leaving the world again and going to the father. And it's in this phrase that Jesus alludes to the resurrection and his subsequent ascension. Earlier in the upper room discourse, Jesus says, Jesus, knowing that the father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God, was going back to God. The word again here in verse 28, it's used with verbs of motion, such as leaving, to describe going to a pre-existing position or station. This just again highlights the fact of, that Jesus is the eternal son of God. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he was not going there for the first time. Far from it. John 17, five says, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I'd be remiss if I did not pause at this moment and to ask you, are you embracing these essential truths of the person and work of Jesus Christ? These essential truths of the gospel. I do not ask you if in youth group one time that you mentally assented to that truth saying, yes, Jesus came, yes, he's God, yes, he died for my sins. No, I'm asking you where you sit right now. Are you resting in, finding your assurance in the fact of these truths that Jesus Christ was the eternal son of God, is the eternal son of God, that he came to accomplish redemption and that he returned to the father and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? 
You cannot be a Christian if you do not accept every single one of these truths. Listen, if this profession of divine faith here encapsulated and condensed in these words does not describe your faith, you must consider if your faith is actually biblical or saving faith. And friends, if, if that is the case, or if you would readily acknowledge that you're not a Christian, that what the Bible says a Christian is, you cannot fall in line with that. Friends, I would encourage you, I would implore you to not just mentally assent to these truths, but to embrace them with your totality of your being. To turn and look upon the Savior on the cross. Jesus or Isaiah says in Isaiah 45, look to me and be saved. Turn from your sins. Look to the one who came forth from God into the world to be the Savior of the world. In verses 25 through 28, Jesus promises divine disclosure of truth and promises divine access to God. He closes in verse 28 with encapsulating the most clear statement of his mission in the incarnation. And as we come to verses 29 through 30, we come to a second aspect of Jesus's final preparations to his disciples. This second aspect is the disciples' shallow realization. The disciples' shallow realization. You see, in verses 29 through 30, the disciples respond to what Jesus has just said. Let's listen to what they say. Verses 29 through 30, we read this. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. As we analyze their response here, I wanna look at two important details of their shallow realization. The first detail we see in verses 29 and 30, and it's the disciples' assertion. The disciples' assertion, they said, the disciples said, lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. The disciples, still lacking in complete understanding, are quick to make the bold assertion that the day and the hour that Jesus had been proclaiming had arrived. And it's not hard to imagine that. I mean, the clarity of statement verse 28 is vivid. And it's in this response, alluding back to verse 25, that the disciples reply, now you are speaking plainly and not using a figure of speech. The disciples continue in verse 30 to say, now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. It's in this verse that the disciples affirm the truth of Jesus's omniscience. You see, in the gospel accounts, we see that the son, though in the incarnation, not divesting himself of any of his attributes of deity, still knew what was in the hearts of men. Mark chapter two, Jesus knew what was in the Pharisee's heart. It's noteworthy that the disciples respond in this way. The disciples respond that you know all things. 
and you have no need for anyone to question you. You see, it was the disciples who in verse 19, we, we read this. Verse 19 of chapter 16, Jesus knew that they wished to question him. That being the disciples. And here the disciples respond, now we know that you have no need for anyone to question you. Well, this assertion leads to a vital conclusion. We see that at the end of verse 30, the disciples' conclusion. Verse 30 goes on to read, by this we believe that you came from God. The by this reaches back into the previous statement of the disciples' affirmation of Jesus' omniscience, the fact of Jesus knowing all things. It was upon the basis of that foundation that they declare, by this we know that you have come from God. I want you to notice and compare the confession of the disciples here in verse 30 with what Jesus gives in verse 28. In verse 30, Jesus, the disciples respond saying, by this we believe that you came from God. Notice that's where it stops. And yet in verse 28, Jesus says, I have come forth from God into the world and I am returning to God. The disciples still here without the guidance of the Holy Spirit into all truth still did not ascertain, still did not comprehend all of the complexities of what would take place in the upcoming hours. While the disciples exemplified genuine faith in this conclusion, it was a shallow realization. And if you don't believe me, we're gonna continue our study. Not only does this confession of the disciples lack the necessary element of the resurrection and ascension of the Messiah, the suffering Messiah that would be exalted to glory, but notice in the verses that we're soon to study that it was a faltering faith. In these verses, the disciples respond to Jesus and demonstrate their still shallow realization of the master and teacher's instruction. Now that brings us to a final aspect, a final aspect in Jesus's departing instruction and his final preparations to his disciples. And it is this, Jesus's emboldening proclamation. Jesus's emboldening proclamation. Look with me at verses 31 through 33. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Now, as we look at these verses together, I want you to notice three specific features of Jesus's emboldening proclamation. The first specific feature that I want you to notice is a promise of or prediction of desertion, a prediction of desertion. You can see this in verses 31 through 32. 
And notice the slight rebuke that Jesus gives in his question in verse 31. Jesus answers them. Do you now believe? It's only now that you are believing. You have been with me for these last three years. You have heard my teaching, teaching as of no other one, one with authority. You have seen me manifest my deity through miracles, through raising the dead. And you're just now believing? It reminds me of Jesus' response to Philip earlier in the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 14, verse 9. There, Jesus says to Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? In verse 32, Jesus offers this solemn prediction of the abandonment of the disciples. And notice what the text says. It says, an hour is coming and has already come. It was no longer on the horizon. It was no longer on the distant. It was right at the front door. It was so near and so imminent that Jesus speaks of the hour has already come. And Jesus says, when this hour comes, you will be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. The word scattered here, it refers to a group or a gathering of a people that are dispersed and scattered in all kinds of various directions. You know, one of the most fascinating events that man has devised is the running of the bulls that takes place in Spain every single year. I mean, to think about what man's mind can come up with. But it's in this festival, the running of the bulls, where bulls are set loose and participants run in front of the parade of bulls, seeking to outlast them and outrun them without being completely ransacked. As these bulls are set loose down the crowded streets, participants and onlookers alike scatter and flee from the oncoming of the bulls. This event is, is picturesque of what we see in the word scattering, a complete dispersion in all various directions. And this is something that was predicted. It was something that was prophesied in the annals of the Old Testament. The post-exilic prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 13, seven writes this. He says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And Jesus quotes the exact same verse in Matthew 26, 31 and says, you will all fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And Jesus says that the disciples will forsake him and will abandon him and leave him alone. And that word alone has the specific connotation of being completely abandoned and forsaken. Yet notice Jesus' confidence in the midst. Jesus says, yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Though the disciples would flee and abandon the Savior in his darkest hour, Jesus rests in the fact that the Father was with him. Leon Morris comments, when the disciples forsook Jesus, he was not alone. 
human abandonment could not make him alone. His communion with the Father was too real for that. Now, we must be clear that this does not negate or contradict Jesus' cry on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For it was in those darkest hours, as the Apostle Paul says, he was made sin, that the Father did forsake the Son as he paid sin's penalty for the elect. But all through up, up to that point, the Father was with Jesus. John 8, 29 says, And he, that is the Father who sent me, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Well, this prediction of desertion leads us to a second feature that I want you to notice, and that is a promise of peace. A promise of peace. Jesus says in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you. Well, we must ask the question, what are these things that Jesus is referring to? Undoubtedly, it, all, it refers to what he has just said in his previous statements, but as the upper room discourse proper, the didactic teaching portion comes and draws to a close, this, these things speaks over the entire arena of the upper room discourse. We discussed in our overview sermon how one of the preeminent reasons the upper room discourse was given was so that the followers of Jesus might have peace in light of his soon departure to the Father. So in summarizing terms, in verse 33, Jesus says that the purpose of all of these things that I have spoken so that you may have peace. You may have peace. And I want you to notice where and only where this peace is found. You see that in me is fronted in the sentence for emphasis. It is only in Jesus that true peace can be found. And this is the only peace that can avail the troubled and the beleaguered soul. It's the same peace that Jesus refers to in John 14, 27, when he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now I must ask you at this point, where do you run for peace? Do you run to the promises of the incarnate word and the written word of God? Do you cling to the objective peace that has been made through the blood of his cross and the subjective peace that ensues? Or do you abandon that for a cheap substitute? Do you run to social media? to waste hours upon hours, to become mindless? Do you, do you run to food? Do you run to exercise? Do you run to countless hours of Netflix watching? Do you run to it in other personal relationships? 
Whatever you run to outside of Christ for peace is a cheap substitute that will leave you woefully desiring the peace that only the Prince of Peace can offer. Now we've spoken multiple times concerning peace, concerning the objective peace that is established through the blood of the cross and the subjective peace that ensues. And you can't have subjective peace, a soul-quieting disposition of the, of the heart and the soul, a peaceful serenity in the midst of life's troubles apart from objective peace vertically with God. And as we think about this objective peace and this subjective peace, the peace that Jesus offers here in verse 33 is the subjective peace. It is the quiet and tranquil disposition of the soul in the midst of life's troubles. I want you to consider this reality. In verse 32, Jesus has just predicted that the disciples will desert him, that they will abandon him in his darkest hour. And he says this, he adds comfort and encouragement. It says, in me, in me, you may have peace. Jesus assures them that true peace can be found in him, in him alone. Well, there's a third and a final feature of Jesus's emboldening proclamation, which is, his proclamation of victory. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Notice the stark contrast that exists between in me you may have peace, but in the world you have tribulation. The world here refers to that system of human existence that is influenced by the God of this world that stands in stark contrast and opposed to God and the things of God. And it's interesting to note that the verb tense that Jesus uses is the present tense. In the world, you are having tribulation. Jesus does not promise safe passageway he does not promise health, wealth, and prosperity. In fact, the apostles preached that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It was the apostle Paul who proclaimed that it is through tribulations that the believer must enter the kingdom of God. But notice, notice that stark contrast that the great shepherd provides in this verse. He says, take courage. Take courage courage. Why? Jesus says, I have overcome the world. The verb overcome, it means to conquer, to be victorious. So how is it that Jesus has conquered or become victorious over the world? Well, it's through his death on Calvary's cross, his defeat of the serpent of old who influences that world by which he gains the victory. And notice how he says, I have overcome the world. So sure, so certain and guaranteed is Jesus' victory that he speaks of it as if it has already happened. And believers, if you are in Christ, he is your federal head. He is your representative head. And as such, he offers that victory to you. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
One of the blessings that Jesus gives the church is in Revelation 3.21, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I think there's no better way to close this final aspect than the words of J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, let us lean back our souls on these comfortable words and take courage. The storms of trial and persecution may sometimes beat heavily upon us, but let them only drive us closer to Christ. The sorrows and losses and crosses and disappointments of our life may often make us feel sorely cast down, but let them only make us tighten our hold upon Christ. The captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ closes out the final teaching portion of the Upper Room Discourse by preparing his disciples with heart emboldening truth and soul comforting peace. We must unwaveringly commit ourselves to boldly standing firm in the midst of the world that we know has tribulation because the captain of our salvation has overcome the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your deep love for us in Christ, that there is nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from your love. God, we acknowledge and recognize how undeserving that we are for your love. But God, we rejoice and we exalt in you because of it, knowing that it is only because of it that we stand in right relationship with you because if it was apart from your initiating love, we would have never loved you. Oh God, would you seal these words upon our consciences? Would you write them upon our hearts with indelible ink? Lord, would they forever change us more into the image of Jesus Christ? It's in his name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Garrett. Please stand with me as we close our time together.